Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Good Monday, everybody. Welcome to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Maxwell, here once again with another podcast for you about shooting turkeys. Or actually, no, I lied. This isn't this this podcast isn't really about shooting turkeys. This is about everything else that has to do with turkeys, like their biology and why our turkeys are declining in the South, which I know a bunch of you folks are interested in. So I reached out to Mr. Brandon Bobo, who is a biologist for the National Wild Turkey Federation, and we talked all things turkeys. So I kind of started this interview out 
uh, with three kind of basic turkey biology questions. I can't even remember what I asked. I think it was like what a home rage was. Uh, is there such thing as call shy gobblers or something? Just, just like kind of general questions. And then we dove into research that he's been doing specifically about turkey decline. And we cover everything from uh, the effects of supplemental feeding and baiting on turkeys, hogs on turkeys, why trapping predators isn't that effective, which that's going to be a hot button issue. Uh, and just a whole bunch of other stuff about why turkeys are declining. And his thoughts on it are very interesting, which there's things that I hadn't heard before. But as you can tell, the ginger bow hunter is not here with me on this intro because he's lazy. Now nah, I'm just kidding. I'm just getting a hard time. But yeah, he, uh, he was hunting this weekend with our buddies over at Grip Wild. They got their butts handed to him. I got my butt handed to me. That's okay because it happens, but... Other than that, had a good Easter weekend. We hope that you and your family out there had a great Easter weekend just like we did. And uh, Alabama season's about to wrap up, so y'all get on it. Y'all go kill some turkeys, man. Another thing is we want you people to email us or message us on Facebook or Instagram and tell us what you want to hear about in the off season. Um, we're thinking about doing some fishing stuff, maybe specifically with like catfishing which me and Jacob both enjoy a lot, you know, like limb lining, trot lining, rod fishing, stuff like that, as well as like ultralight creek fishing, which is what I'm really the only kind of fishing I'm actually good at is like getting in a little tiny creek with an ultralight, like a fluke or something on there. I can tear up some bass like that, but baby, you put me on Gunnersville with like an $80,000 bass boat, I probably won't catch anything. I don't know why. I'm just, I'm just not good at like that bigger water stuff. But anyways... We're thinking about doing that, maybe some saltwater stuff, and then also gear stuff. Our gear uh, videos have been some of our more popular things on YouTube so far. And uh, so we're wanting to know what kind of gear you guys want to look at. Whatever whatever it is, we could probably get our hands on it and do whatever kind of video people want to see. We could do a review, we could do a test, blah, 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 whatever. We just need to know what our audience wants to see. So you guys let us know, please. That would be super, super, super helpful. Also, uh, if you've been listening to us over the last few weeks, you know that um, me and Jacob are both going to Colorado this fall to hunt elk. And if you've been a long-time listener, you know that we went and hunted mule deer in Wyoming uh, two years ago. For that hunt, if you listen to those episodes, you know what kind of a catastrophe our backpack situation was. So I'm about to get rid of the cheapo backpack, and I'm going to get a better one, which Jacob already kind of jumped the gun on that. He got a Mystery Ranch Pentler, I think it was. And if any, like, uh, us Easterners don't use backpacks like that very often. So if you're unfamiliar with it, it's basically a pack frame, like an external frame in a bag, and you can take the bag off and put other bags on it and customize it. But there's a space in between the frame and the bag where you can you can like open up that space and you can put meat in there. You can put, you know, whatever you want in between the frame and the bag just as extra storage. And there's like load lifters on the pack and, and a nice hip belt. And it just makes the, the whole experience easier. It just makes it easier on your body. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm taking a leap and I'm going to get a Kafaru pack, which I know that you guys who are familiar with packs were just like, <gasps> Kafaru it's expensive it's really expensive but buy once cry once i guess and i'm putting that out there for two reasons one if anybody out there has a kafaru woodsman pack they're wanting to get rid of then hit me up because i might buy it from you secondly um 
we actually we've had a decent amount of interest from people about those kind of packs out east because you know we we deer hunt too and uh this year after you know hunting in wyoming last year this past season we started packing our deer out here in the east on public land because we realized that i think we were talking to our buddy jeff the other day and he put it best he was like if i have to make three trips back and forth packing it out that's still easier than dragging it because walking's easier than dragging, which is extremely true, especially if you hunt the kind of places that we hunt that have all these daggum ridges and valleys that suck to walk up and down. So uh, if you guys want to see a video on kind of those pack setups and maybe how to get started as an Easterner um, running these packs, we'd love to do something on that. We just want to see if there's interest in it. Uh, and before we got the saddles, Jacob was actually running a stand in his mystery ranch pack. So he was actually able to put that stand in between, like I said earlier, in between the frame and the bag, and it packed up really nicely. It was extremely easy to carry, and I'll tell you what, it sure beats any other shoulder strap you, you get out there. You know, you can go to, like, Filmstream or Cabela's or whatever and get, like, those cheapo shoulder straps to go on a summit stand. I mean, dude, it is, it, it's life-changing, like, having it, packing a stand on a bag like that. And then also, like we said earlier, you can haul your deer out. Most of the time in one load. I packed a whole doe out this year in one load, and I was using like an unframed, just good old cloth backpack. But the the nicer pack's going to be worth it, and hopefully it'll last for a super long time, especially with how much it costs. But anyways, let us know if that's something you want to see. Let us know about other things you might want to see, and we'll do our best to produce it. It makes our job a lot easier when we kind of know what you want to see. So it's always a huge help when people do that and we can't thank those enough who've already done it for us and uh, also we can't thank those enough who've left us reviews so if you haven't left us a review already we'd really appreciate that as well and um, I know that all of you are like shut up oh my gosh be quiet man get to the interview so that's what I'm going to do now sorry for keeping you for 6 minutes and 58 seconds but anyways Thanks for listening. Here's my interview with Mr. Brandon Bobo of the NWTF. All right, everybody, and I'm here with Mr. Brandon Bobo, who is a NWTF biologist here in the state of Alabama. Um, I'm glad we finally got this lined up, man. Brandon, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Andrew. Like I was telling you, it's, it's you know refreshing to finally be able to get with you. It's been almost a month in the making that we've been trying to get together and just I know a lot of it's been work, and I'm sure a lot of it's been me or you turkey hunting. Oh yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with either of those. So. That's right. That's right. Together. Yeah, it's something about the springtime, man. I don't know what it is about the spring, but my life just kind of explodes in the spring because usually I get real busy with not fun things, and then I get real busy with fun things too, where I'm fishing and I'm hunting and I'm doing all kinds of stuff. So it's usually a pretty pretty crazy time, but I ought to slow down here about two weeks or so. Oh, just yeah. Believe me, I. I saying that i know what you mean is an understatement because uh you know as a turkey as a turkey biologist quote unquote i i get asked all the time you know how, how much turkey hunting do you get to do is, you know how great is your job you get to turkey hunt for a living and i'm like you have no idea you know this, <laughs> this is like the busiest time of the year for me but i you know and, and we're we're really fortunate in wtf you know our my supervisor and pretty much all of our staff are all encouraged to get out and spend time in the woods because, you know, it really reminds you what you're doing and why you're doing and kind of reinvigorates you to, to get out there and 
and pursue your passion um, for the resource. And so that's that's something that you know we try to take time. And if I'm fortunate enough to live real close here to Talladega National Forest, where I grew up um, here in Oxford, and I I can be you know in the woods in in ten minutes. And uh, it, like this morning, I didn't hear any gobbling. And after walking about three miles, I was back in the office by eight. So <laughs> I can relate to that. So, so you, you know, you never know. Um, some mornings are better than others, and I, you know, they, these birds tend to to stump me all the time. I've had so many learning experiences, what I like to call them, <laughs> this year. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like you know, and I, I haven't even killed a turkey yet, but I've had at least three that I should have killed. Um, I'm right there and, with you. You know, that's just the way it goes, man. But I also, uh, this year, am only on public land. I actually lost a lease that we were in, um, formerly down in Lee County, down there near your neck of the woods in Auburn. And uh, we actually got out of that lease this year. So I'm strictly private, strictly public land, excuse me. And, uh, and I tell you, I've had... It, there's a lot of birds, especially up here in my area, in Talladega, Chuckalaka Wildlife Management Area, in the Hollands, WMA, and pretty much all across Talladega. We've, we're covered up with birds. Um, the issue is, you know, you, you really got to know how to hunt them. They, they're smart. They're they're educated. Um, you know, and just yelping, 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 yelping is not going to get it done. You got to really know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. That whole, like, band of of central alabama i feel like it's pretty well known for having a good many turkeys which it's funny i was actually looking at you mentioned like chalk lock and hollands and, and that like general like that mountain chain right there basically i actually saw a guy today on alabama turkey hunters who was like uh he was like man i can't get on any birds in my lease are there any turkeys over there talking about those management areas i'm like shoo man you don't even know. <laughs> and I would say, if you can't kill any turkeys on your lease, then you're going to have a much harder time on private, on public land. But, I, I, you know, and I, I'm a big deer hunter, too. That's actually uh, a lot of the, the undergraduate uh, stuff I did with some, some grad students there at Auburn uh, was research on whitetail deer. So I'm a pretty big deer hunter myself, and, and I've taken some pretty nice bucks off Chocolaca. Um, and I tell you, I, I've taken some bigger deer off private land, but there's nothing more rewarding than being able to get out on a highly pressured public land area and being able to harvest, you know, either a mature gobbler or whitetail and knowing that that experience is just about like, you know, getting a master's, you know, that's, it's as good as you can get really, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's a doctorate of, of hunting when you can get out there on, you know, and you think about Alabama. And I know some people who travel all across the country hunting public land. Alabama has probably, you know, for our land mass, we have some of the fewest amount of acreage in public land of any state compared to our total acreage in, across the state. And yep. what that means is, uh, combined with, with the southern state and here in the deep south and, and the history we have uh, of turkey hunting, you know, they get really highly pressured. I mean, more so than just about any other state um and that that just means you got to be on your game you know you got to know what you're doing and uh and it's not like it's not like going out and hunting out in the midwest um mm-hmm. but but you know turkeys are really a product of their environment and, and i say that because you know the first time i had a chance to hunt rio grands 
was, let's see, that would have been 2013. Um, we were on a southeastern wild turkey working group meeting uh, which is 14 southeastern states uh, and their state agency representatives from their turkey committee as well as uh, all of our nwtf staff from the southeast and and basically we meet every year to talk research talk turkeys um some of the research we're going to talk about is related to that group but when i was there uh, in 2013 we had some property that was actually kind of donated for us uh, to, to go on a hunt. Um, there were several different properties that we, we were able to go to. The one that we drew, along with uh, three other of my colleagues who are all great turkey hunters, had been highly pressured uh, for the two weeks prior. In fact, I had learned while we were there that a guy from Wisconsin had killed seven birds. You know, the limit there in in for Rios, uh, for a non-resident, is one per individual oh. per non-resident tag. Oh, he, man. He had all his cousins and all his brothers and sisters and all there, and uh, apparently he, he killed one for every one of them. And I'll tell you what, after that, after those two weeks, those birds would not work to save my life. I had three different times when I could have killed birds, and they just, they were skittish. And, you know, it's, they, they had been educated, basically. So mm-hmm. it's not, I tell people that all the time, it's not the subspecies, it's the environment. You know, there's places that, are, that there's Easterns that are very easy to call and kill and, and get them to come. And, and you can call them off of hands a lot of times in the early part of the season. Um, but it's all a matter of, you know, how, how highly pressured they are. Um, because, you know, the, the birds that I've had experiences with this year on public land, I guarantee you, they're going to be more skittish than they were. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Branch. Go on. Sorry, my little boy can just heard my wife come in the door, and he's down here whining in my office. No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, man. Well, well, so so yeah, we're jumping right into it here. So, uh, what I want to do for this episode is I want to ask you just a couple like general like turkey hunting questions. You know, like kind of we'll do like kind of quick question answer kind of things where we'll hit a topic for a minute or two, move on to another one real quick. And then after we kind of get through some of those, I want to get into some of the research you've been a part of and kind of dive into, you know, some things that might be interesting to turkey hunters um, on the research side of things. So the first thing that I was going to ask you about, is there such thing as a call shy gobbler? Well, you know, like I said, it's really what they, how they've been, you know, habituated to, to their environment, meaning that, if somebody's been calling them, and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I was just this week, um, well, it was actually about two weeks ago, I was in an area on the Talladega National Forest that was regionally burnt by the Forest Service. I mean, it was burnt like two days prior. It was still smoldering. There was a lot of stumps uh, still smoking pretty considerably. And... I knew it was going to be a good spot because turkeys just love to come in there right after a burn. And I actually got on a bird real quick. I mean, I wasn't even hunting 15 minutes and I had him working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm sitting here and all this black's all around me and I finally got a spot where I could sit. And before I even could put decoys out, I had to be ready. And as soon as I, he popped his head up, all I really had to do was move my barrel six inches and I could have shot him. But as soon as he popped that head up, 
he saw camouflage in the middle of black. And oh, he yeah. Was, I heard putt, and then I kind of tried to jump up, about blew my knee out, and tried to get a shot off and couldn't ever see him again. And, you know, at that point, he was gone. That, that was after about five gobbles. But I, it's funny because I, I tried to kind of move around and find another bird, and I heard him after about 15 minutes, and it was the same bird. He had just moved to another ridge about 400 yards off. So I'd call to him a little bit, and I'd hear him further. I'd move closer, call again. He'd be further again. So <laughs> that's what I would consider call shy, you know. And I, I think that, yeah, absolutely, birds – they learn just like, you know, white-tailed deer, you know, they use their nose. They know where people tend to congregate in terms of roads and how they hunt. Um, and there's a lot of research out there that will show you where most of the birds are killed, where they like to spend most of their time. And I tell most hunters, if you, if you really want to get a, a bird and you really want to actually get in there to where they'll work, especially on, on public land, you, you're going to have to get in there at least a mile, um, mm-hmm. you know, or, or at least in a good area, you know, that's got some considerable topography, maybe as the crow flies half a mile. But it's got to be, you know, an area that is not just off the side of the road because there's a lot of areas that, you may, from the road, say that looks like beautiful habitat, and it probably is. But will a turkey really work to you in there? And that's that's where the call shy part comes in. And I kind of think about three years ago, I was hunting on Chakalaka, and I I was uh, actually working a bird who was down in the, ho- in the bottom of a creek bottom and. I was up on a ridge top. This was on Chakalaka. So if anybody, any of your listeners know, this is some extreme terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, real close to the highest point in our state, which is where I live, right at the base of Chihaw Mountain, which is almost 2,500 feet. And so these birds, they you know, you have to really work the terrain to get on them. And I, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm slowly just not even yelping. I shudder to yelp unless I absolutely have to. Uh, in, in public land especially and I you know I'm just sitting here clucking and purring and every now and then I might cut a little bit and then I'd get a response well on the other ridge all of a sudden I hear this and just a yelping as loud as possible with a box call just about every 10 seconds and I hear it moving and after the first two series of calls I knew exactly what was going on so I said I'm I'm done with this I just backed out and that bird never gobbled again. I got back to my truck, and I was pulling, you know, after I had hiked out about a mile, um, the guy had come in from the other side and was calling over there. And uh, he asked me, he said, did you hear anything? I said, yeah, I heard I heard a bird. I, I think I heard somebody calling. I, I knew it was him. I didn't want to embarrass him. <laughs> he said, yeah, I think I heard one down in the bottom over here, uh, close to us, and I as he was driving off, I saw Kansas plates, and I couldn't help but think, yeah, these these are not Kansas birds. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. It's a little bit different just, out there. That's just how it goes. You know, a lot of people come down here with those expectations because we do have a pretty good population, but it's just not the same kind of hunting. 
Yeah, it's it's just yeah, and we just on our last episode covered uh, hunting Kansas Rios with our buddy Jacob Emery from the Hunting Grounds TV, and right. just the way he describes it, I mean, it it is definitely vastly different. Um, the next thing I kind of wanted to hit with, kind of is building on that same subject. You hear people talking about, and this is this is also the case with deer. You hear people talk about how we're like basically artificially like uh, how do I put this? We're like selectively breeding turkeys almost, like natural selection. Like the turkeys that that gobble their heads off, the turkeys that tend to, to be very talkative get killed. And after years and years and years and years of killing really talkative turkeys, we're like reducing the population to turkeys that don't talk as much. And people say you could do the same thing with like big bucks, which I don't know how much truth there is to that, which is why I'm asking you, a professional biologist. So is there any kind of truth to that, or is that kind of an old wives' tale? You know... We've been killing turkeys um, since European man came over here and basically almost extirpated all of our turkeys, and they still gobble. And sometimes I've heard birds, you know, I've heard up to 400-plus gobbles on some areas of private land where, you know, we had 5,000 contiguous acres in Mississippi when I lived there, and, you know, I was in a lease where it was intensively managed, and those birds gobbled their heads off. But I've also heard people say that, you know, that these, these birds are slowly not gobbling as much. I would not think that natural selection plays a key in that. And that's that's mainly because it's turkey, just like deer, they're individualistic. They each have their own personalities. You know, one, mern- one morning you might hear a bird gobble a hundred times, and then you might hear two other birds, because I had this happen this year, gobble five or six um, oh yeah i had that happen last year a bunch of times yeah, yeah and so it just you know each individual bird is going to have a different personality it, and today i felt like you know it's a good it's warming up again um we're on the back end of that front that just came through i felt like it's going to be a good morning well that kind of shows what i know because i didn't hear a single gobble <laughs> And this is the same spot oh, where they had counted 226 gobbles uh, just last week when it was freezing cold. Um, mm-hmm. I'm know, experiencing the same thing. There's, I've had a lack of gobbles this week. I took this morning off to get some work done, but but I've hunted every other day before that, including the weekend. And it was on last week a lot better, it seemed like. Saturday, uh, I hunted with uh, actually Wayne Lackey. You know him. Um, lives in Mumford. I hunted with him. We heard a, a pretty decent amount of birds, and then after that, every hunt after that, I haven't heard a, a peep. I mean, nothing. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny. Some places I, I won't hear anything, and then I'll have somebody tell me, "Man, they were gobbling like crazy." And this is in the same county. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, it's property you know, to property. So I had, my buddy called me the other day, and he's a, a turkey slayer. I mean, he basically taught me how to turkey hunt. He and I went to high school together, and he's like. You know, I I didn't hear a thing today, and I was like, well, I had them gobbling all morning. It was that same morning I had those 226. And, and the reason I keep giving you that number, I, I knew how many gobbles it was because I keep a count. Um, and the reason I do that is because I just kind of want to throw this in real quick um, for your listeners so anybody in Alabama can participate. We have what's called an avid turkey hunter survey. And I, I'm not sure, did Chuck mention that when he was on with you? I don't think so. We were mainly talking about deer stuff with Chuck. Okay, so so the Avid Turkey Hunter Survey is basically 
uh, a report that we get from turkey hunters who are what we consider avids. Those guys that get out multiple times, you know, in a season, and they may not kill a bird every year, but they've at least killed, you know, some, and they're pretty adapted hunting, and they spend enough time in the woods to give us some real good data. Um, and that's what the avid turkey hunter survey is about. Uh, so we, we partner with the state agency, the Division of Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries, and that's the reason I asked you if, uh, if Chuck had mentioned that, because we actually have about a little over 400 participants right now um, that participate in this survey. And they've been, we've been doing the survey since 2014. So we're in our fifth year now. Um, and basically all we're doing is we're counting the number of gobbles, we're trying to count individual gobblers that we hear. We're counting the amount of observations that we see. In other words, how many jakes, how many hens, how many um, gobblers that we're seeing, uh, our time that we go out and we hunt. Is it public or private land? You know, even down to what eco-region, meaning, you know, what part of the, the state that we're in. Um, and all that data is compiled at the end of the season, and it gives us a very good accurate you know fairly accurate and that's why i say the more participants we have the larger sample size as you know being an auburn student that you know the larger the sample size is the more accurate and precise we can be with our numbers and our statistics so the more participants we have the better our data is going to look and, and another thing you know with game check that's going to be a great a great thing for us we we know and i'm sure chuck probably mentioned that Right now, we're looking at around 33% um, of harvests that are probably being reported. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's generally about what you would see in most states that have recently adopted some form of mandatory harvest uh, reporting. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. Um, in Tennessee, they actually started in 2015 with harvest uh, mandatory harvest reporting. And their initial... Uh, results for about 33%. And as we've gone through time now in 2018, they're up to about 60 to 70% in terms of looking at historical data and the way they would estimate their harvest would be through mail-out surveys, which is the same way we've done it. Um, and that data told us that we had about 27,000 birds harvested last year but we only showed 9,000 per game check. Uh -huh. So that, that's where we kind of get that difference in numbers. Um, now, Tennessee has seen a rise in that because people are buying in. They know that that data is important. They're starting to understand. And some just you know lack of knowledge that, that we actually have it in place. Um, yeah. But the avid turkey hunter survey is a little bit different. Just kind of right, go back to that. That's where we get that additional data um, per district, you know, breaking down our five districts according to the division um, and looking at all the WMAs, looking at, you know, how much, how many harvests they're having on WMAs, you know, how many uh, gobblers per district you're looking at um, in terms of what people are observing. So that data goes a long way to tell us a lot more information. But the more participants we have, as I mentioned, you know, the, the more accurate we can be with that data. And it's just ancillary data for us um, to really supplement the game check data. Mm -hmm. So 
I'll also throw the throw this in there too that our state chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation here in Alabama actually donates a shotgun every year to a random uh, participant in the survey. All right. Yes, it's, it's it's a it's usually a real nice turkey gun. Unfortunately, I'm not eligible to win that, so don't worry about me. You can take one off of the. <laughs> <laughs> and so so it's it's at least a little bit of incentive for folks to get involved. Anybody that wants to do so can find, uh, just go on Outdoor Alabama website, and then you can look under turkeys, and then you'll find the, uh, the Avid Turkey Hunter survey, and then you can kind of get involved that way. And the way I do it is really I just kind of write it out at the end of every hunt, and then I'll go through when I get some time, either at the end of the week or the end of the, you know, a couple weeks when I get a chance, and I'll go in online and I'll insert all my data. Um, and it's a really good way for us to get a more accurate look and portrayal of what hunters are doing across the state. Yeah, um, I think that's I think that's awesome. That's a great program, and I didn't I actually didn't know about that until you just explained it. So I'm going to definitely start participating in that. I'm sure that Jacob will too, and I got several other buddies who I hunt with who I know they're going to start doing it as well. So that's great. Um, you know, I, the, a lot of people, you know, everyone's a Facebook biologist and. People like to talk about people like to talk about what we should or shouldn't do, you know, to to help the turkey population in Alabama or any southern or any state for that matter. But what people don't realize is, you know, we you have to have data to do that. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it, you know. So right. so you got to have you got to collect that data, but I got one more like random turkey question for you and then I want to jump full into all that research cuz I know that's what everyone's really interested in, but me personally I'm interested in this one last question. Um, what what is like the home range of a turkey? You know, what what kind of acreage does a turkey typically inhabit? Well, that's going to vary um, from season to season. So basically, when when birds are in their winter flocks, you know, they change. You know, similar to deer that have bachelor groups, you know, throughout the summer, and then they start to segregate when. You know, they, they begin to spar. You'll see the same thing with gobblers when they start to fight. Um, in the early part of spring, early part of March, they'll start to break up. Sometimes they'll stick together, you know, and a lot of times gobblers will be in small groups. Um, but but usually as the season progresses, you'll see hens, specifically hens, they'll start to get out on their own when they're ready to nest. Um, and that's just really mainly to keep them uh, from a security standpoint, away from any type of predation, not so much for themselves, but altruistically to, to protect their nests mm-hmm. um, so that they can have a chance at hatching that clutch and having some survival. Um, so a, a home range is going to vary tremendously, and, and that also is going to vary according to habitat type. So let's say here in Alabama, you know, we're 95% forested. So a home range in Alabama, if you have ideal habitat that's not a not a overstocked pine plantation with no understory, but maybe an open, you know, pine savanna with a lot of sunlight hitting the ground, a lot of native grass, um, maybe some openings here and there, you know, that home range is probably not going to be as large as it would be in an area that's really not well managed because turkeys have to range more to find forage or even uh, opportunity to breed. Mm-hmm. So going back to kind of the, the winter range, it's going to be a lot smaller 
um, specifically for, for gobblers. And they kind of get into those winter groups that you'll see. You know, I think last this past fall we were uh, doing a youth hunt, and we, we got a video of 35 of them on a 400-acre property that I know uh, we because we actually owned uh, for a few years as an easement, and we were doing several youth hunts. And on 450 acres, you know, that's 35 birds, and, and a good third, a good 12, 10 to 12 of those were gobblers. Um, so, but it's an ideal habitat. It was on the Alabama River, which you're talking about premier uh, soil, which, as you know, soil translates to, you know, more carrying capacity, meaning mm-hmm. you can hold more birds on the landscape. Um, but once they get into those spring home ranges, specifically for gobblers, you're, you're talking a thousand plus in some cases in terms of acreage. Um, now, hens, it's much more condensed. Um, but for winter flocks, you know, you could, you could hold an entire flock, you know, within a, within a section in some cases, you know, if you've got ideal habitat, which is 640 acres. Mm-hmm. So it's just going to, it's a lot of variability to that. But I will say that in our particular case in Alabama, home ranges tend to be a lot smaller and in, in not just Alabama, the state, but the Southeast in general, just because of our forest cover type and the amount of diversity that we have, you may see a hundred different species of trees where in the Midwest on that same amount of acreage, you might see 10 different species of trees. Mm-hmm. So that really changes things a lot too, where, you know, they may range 3000 acres out in Nebraska, but they may only do, you know, five to a thousand, 500 to a thousand, you know, here in our state, um, in, in talking about the spring. Okay. And, and, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, birds have their own personality, their own individualistic uh, way of going about their everyday life. So they may range a whole lot more. And there's a lot of research. I keep going back to deer, but there's a lot of research on deer about these excursions that they're taking, which are kind of relatively new. And Auburn's doing a lot of research on that and why these deer would all of a sudden shift their home range from one location to another and then go back, you know, and, and we don't really know why that is. Um, but I've seen from a lot of GPS data that we have in research that turkeys can kind of do the same thing. You know, they'll, they'll move off to other locations in some cases, specifically in the spring. And a lot of that's just dispersion. You know, jakes are going to get run off by their family groups. So the hens are kind of going to going to kind of run their brood off, especially those jakes, and that's really to kind of keep the genetic diversity in check, where there's not a lot of inbreeding going on, and they'll move off and they'll find their own home range. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But, I mean, in, in a section, you know, 640 acres, you could have several birds if it's really good quality habitat. Okay. All right. So now let's. Let's jump into the meat of it. I want to talk about research, which I don't know what you're planning on talking about because you, you told me earlier that you have a couple things in mind. So I'm going to kind of let you run with it, and I'm going to kind of interrupt you as you run through it and ask you questions about what you're talking about. Okay, so first off, you know, I'll kind of talk generally about this perception of turkey decline that we have. And I, 
say perception loosely because it's, you know, our data really does point to that decline um, specifically over the past 10 to 15 years. And a lot of it correlates with when restocking efforts took place and when they concluded. So in other words, in Alabama, you know, we were the source population for a lot of those other states that needed uh, additional birds to be trapped and relocated um, to supplement their population. And so our restocking efforts really, you know, we were doing some restocking maybe in, you know, and I know we were doing some restocking efforts in the 2000s, but most of our large-scale restocking efforts were basically concluded by the 90s, you know, by the Mm mid-90s, which meant at that point we were at a point in this state, and I hear it all the time from hunters, you know, back in the late, mid to late 90s, you know, I could hear bird on every holler I went to. You know, I could hear 5, 10, 15 birds in the morning. Now I may be lucky to hear one or two. Well, the the ugly truth about this, Andrew, is that once you do restocking efforts, there's a bit of a ebb and flow with your population after that. Mm-hmm. So they get to a point where you restock your birds and they're doing real well. They're going, the population trend keeps going up and they get to a point where the, the carrying capacity is being exceeded. And when I say carrying capacity, obviously that's how many birds you can sustain on that particular landscape. Um, and what we, what I've seen is that since about the year 2000, um, to 2005 depending on what part of the state you're looking at to present day we've seen a precipitous decline in the amount of pulp per hen uh, brood data that we see annually now it may fluctuate a little bit and and i want to go back to this pulp per hen data because the pulp per hen data is very important it's the one data set that we have regionally across the 14 southeastern states um and i mentioned the southeastern wild turkey working group and i told you i was going to go back to that because Mm -hmm. what we've kind of developed in this working group is a a best management practice if you will or a standard protocol of how each state collects that brood uh that brood survey data Mm -hmm. so we're kind of on a even keel now everybody's on kind of the same page in all of our 14 southeastern states in terms of how we collect our data so yeah so you basically established kind of like guidelines where everybody is measuring things in the exact same way so you're not getting some people who have like way high values and some people like way low based on how they're measuring exactly exactly so so i'll give you kind of an example you may you may see you know 14 poults and one hen well we know that there's probably not 14 poles with that one hen but there's probably going to be more hens out there around that you're just not seeing so there's kind of some parameters that we set and guidelines that show us you know what we're looking for and what is accurate credible data when it's submitted and there's outliers always like i mentioned you know that would be in a case of an outlier um, but what we try, we, we've tried to, and we've gotten really good at now standardizing this approach of 
of brood survey data because we can go back so far with this data, you know, for several decades in in a lot of states, um, particularly in the southeast, and a lot of states, if you look at the when the decline started, another example, and I'll use Tennessee again, Tennessee actually didn't start seeing decline until maybe the late 2000s, early early teens, um, you know, around that 2000, 2008, 2012 time frame, they started seeing a little bit of a dip in their pulp per hen ratio. Um, and that, as I mentioned, could correlate back to restocking efforts. Their restocking efforts took place a lot later than ours did because they had much more need for, for restocking. They just had less birds, less population. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I kind of want to go back to the pulp hen thing because it's really important that I want people to understand most research, pretty much all the research, suggests that at two pulse per hen, in other words, for every hen, if you're seeing two pulse, and that means from the months of, you know, April on into July for renesting, uh, to, to account for renesting, that's hens that, that lose their first clutch and go out and renest again. We know that typically that's about a 60%, and it can vary. You know, juvenile hens are only about 30%. In terms of the, the amount of renet, the amount of hens that will renest, mm-hmm. so we want to capture those in there as well. Um, but but basically, what past research has shown us is that at two two hen two pulse per hen, excuse me, you're basically at a stable population or slightly climbing. Once you get below two pulse per hen, maybe one point eight to one point seven, which is what we've been seeing. In most years here in Alabama, since about, you know, the mid-2000s, you're actually looking at a bit of a decline. Mm-hmm. And that's from a recruitment standpoint, how much you're putting and recruiting into the population um, and how successful they are at, at raising these broods. And so what we're seeing is that continuously our brood, our pulse per hen, although, you know, it may be steady at 1.7, or 1.8, that actually is is meaning that population over time is declining. Um, but what we've seen here in recent years is a couple a couple instances of you know pulp hen ratios above two. So that may indicate that it's starting to stable stabilize a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the short answer is that we don't know any silver bullet i don't think there is a silver bullet out there that says this is the reason that turkeys are in this decline specifically in the southeast and they've actually got a northeastern working group too that's seeing the same thing and as i mentioned they're seeing this thing seeing this decline a lot later than we are here in the southeast because they're restocking took place later that Um, is fascinating that's interesting i hadn't i hadn't heard that before and i'd actually just like me myself kind of thinking about this i've kind of wondered about that because you know you learn about like equilibriums and everything you know or like whether it be like a like a some species with its habitat or like a predator prey dynamic where you know you'll you'll reach way above carrying capacity and then it'll kind of crash a little bit and then it'll like maybe go back up and kind of reach that equilibrium where everything's kind of in harmony you know, the landscape can support the amount of animals that's there without being destroyed. So, 
what I'm hearing from you is that's kind of what y'all are leaning towards as far as the turkey decline is. Yeah, uh, that, that's a part of it. Um, I think personally, I think there's several factors, um, and I'll go into those in a second. But but generally, uh, you know, what we've seen is that there is a boom and bust, and we pretty much know that. You know, if you get these late season, in, in other words, April cold weather really wet seasons then in two years you're not going to have a very good population of gobblers because those two and a half year old birds just aren't going to be there in years that they may have had better weather you know in the springtime and that's just that's just the reality of it you know you can't control weather you know that's just an act of god so in years that we're blessed with good weather, and it varies across the state. You know, in one radio interview I did last year, I kind of broke down the numbers, and that's in looking at rainfall on average. And it, in the south part of the state, they got hit really hard two years prior with rainfall. So I basically said, you know, I would not expect a very good year. Uh, and in the north part of the state, they had they did not hit a lot of flooding in the in the spring to late spring. Um, and, and basically what I said was they're probably going to see more birds. And actually that came to fruition because in the north part of the state here, we're starting to see more birds. Um, other things that, that could be leading to decline, you know, everybody wants to put it on predators. Well, mm-hmm. I say everybody, a lot of people, your Facebook biologists and, and the like, <laughs> they, they want to say that predators are killing all of our turkeys and taking all the nests. Um, and I, you know, that there, there is some validity to that, uh, in terms of there's a lot of predators out there that we just can't do anything about, you know, there's not a lot of terrestrial predators. In other words, bobcats are probably about the only thing on ground, on the ground that are going to take out, you know, live turkeys. Um, other than that, in, in the Southeast, at least coyotes are really not contributing to, any kind of mortality specifically with wild turkeys but they will eat nests and so will white-tailed deer i mean and i don't say that jokingly i mean i i've literally witnessed uh game camera footage of white-tailed buck eating an entire turkey nest what like eating the eggs yeah i mean you think about it you're an opportunistic you know omnivore or you're an opportunistic animal out there who's looking for protein what could be higher and more rich in protein than a fresh turkey egg? Oh, wow. So, I, I'm not saying that white-tailed deer are out there eating all our eggs. What I am saying, though, is that if you try to trap for raccoons and your mesocarnivores like coons and possums and um, and skunks and armadillos, there are other nest predators that will fill that niche. And this has been researched and statistically proven. They, they did some intensive trapping on all those mesocarnivores I just mentioned, basically decimated their populations, and they found no change whatsoever in the amount of nesting success that they had on that area. Interesting. Because what they found was they actually saw uh, gray rat snakes and several other species, ants, um, a lot of other different animals that would come in and fill that niche. So where that gap was and that void was from those mesocarnivores that we typically, you know, in our minds, think of synonymously 
with nest predators. Well, there's other nest predators out there. You're just not thinking about them. And and how do you trap snakes? You can't. First of all, it's illegal. Um, And then what do you do about avian predators? Because that's another thing I wanted to get to. Because I guarantee you the number one predator of at least a poult is going to be an owl. And that's because the first two weeks of their life, they're they're nesting on the ground or they're roosting on the ground. So basically at night, they're not old enough to fly up for two weeks. And most of those poults, if they're out in the open at night, owls are going to be picking them off one by one. And they're, you know, other than the, than the outlaw way of doing things, there's no way you're going to control <laughs> that. And even still, you know, avian predators are so transient. In other words, they move such great distances. If you were to, to go out there and illegally shoot hawks well there's other ones that are going to come in you know they do migrate so and i also know that we've seen a a major uptick in our numbers of avian predators over the last you know several decades so that could be a contributing factor but i'm not done yet okay i've got (laughs) others all right because we have seen in my tenure here with nwtf in almost seven years we've seen a major in both mississippi and alabama a major exponential amount of reported uh, mortality cases. In other words, birds that were found dead and then were necropsied. In other words, they were sent to the Southern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study Group, or SQUIDIS as we call them, and they were shown to have some kind of disease or basically loss of fitness that led to their eventual demise. Um, and, and that's not any specific disease in particular. So a lot of people want to point to blackhead. Um, I've heard West Nile or something like that. Yeah, uh, avian flu was one that, that everybody was up in arms about. And here most recently, LPDV, which is lymphoproliferative disease virus, was one that people were really new to in the uh, early 2000s and actually is as late as uh, 2013-14, they were doing a lot of research on that and actually found that this this virus, which originated in Eurasia, probably has been around for millennia, and we just didn't know it because we didn't study it and we had no way of, of testing for it. So mm. what they found is that birds with LPDV, well, they generally have some other, you know, disease or virus that, that they've contracted so it's basically in most of the birds that you're going to find necropsy with some sort of disease. So now we're thinking disease, maybe it's not, you know, one specific disease, but it's how disease is being transferred. And that leads to my other possible, you know, reason for decline. And that is, I know a lot of you your listeners are going to cringe when they hear me say this. More liberal baiting laws. Because Alabama mm. right now... Maybe you're good. Through. That was what I was about to ask you about. <laughs> so so I, I figured you were probably getting there. Oh, yeah. Um, so right now, it's, it's in our legislation. It's passed the House again. Uh, this is not the first time we've seen this. This is like the third year in a row, I think. Yeah, it, it is. Um and I get a lot of calls about this and people up in arms. And the best thing I can do is tell them to voice their opinion to your state senators because they're the ones who are going to make the final decision. Um, 
you know, they're trying to, to pass through a law now that allows to hunt over bait. Um, and their reasoning is to, I think right now they're, they're kind of jumping on the feral hog bandwagon saying that if we can put bait on the ground and hunt over it, we can kill more hogs. But that's just, you know, I don't want to get off to the hog topic. That's a whole but, rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I do think there are, there, there could be some definite instances where hogs are decimating turkey populations. And if you look at the Mobile, Tensaw Delta area down in southwest Alabama, I think that's really a problem just because of the destruction that they have to their habitat. You know, if I've got landowners in the, that part of the state or if I, you know, they're in every county of the state. So in all 67 counties, I ask landowners when I meet them, I say, do you have hogs on your property? Because most of them want to plant chufa, which is great for turkeys. But I'll tell you right now, if you have hogs anywhere around, you do not plant chufa because it's a, number one, an effort in futility. And if you've got hogs on adjacent neighboring properties, you're just going to bring them in because they love it. You know, they root the ground up similar to the way a turkey would scratch the ground up, but they are much more destructive to the habitat. And they'll come in and, and completely tear up an entire acre of chufa overnight. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it, you know, in, in many cases. And I've actually heard uh, some uh, one of the guys on my state board has told me he witnessed a sow get to a double-lined electric fence around a chufa plot. This is in Clark County. She backed up about 100 yards. She started squealing as loud as she could and ran full speed through both strands of those electric fences and rolled into the chufa patch, got up, and started eating. Oh, my gosh. Now tell me that's not a smart animal. Man, I mean, she, she wanted that chufa, man. She was hungry. They, they got better sense of smell uh, and sensory receptors in their sinus than just about any other mammal, you know, on earth, you know, other than maybe a, a, a bear. Um, so they, they, they do a lot of destruction to turkey habitat. And I told you, I didn't want to get off of that rabbit hole, but, but <laughs> the whole thing I was talking about was basically more liberal baiting laws. And so I don't say that because I think people are out there baiting and killing more turkeys. I say that because I think that could be a correlation with the the higher prevalence of disease that we see. Because when you put corn on the ground, specifically in a pile, and you have you know you animals from all around coming to that one location, which is really not natural in a natural setting in, in an ecosystem. They're coming in and they're transmitting, you know, through aerosol and transmission and salivation and just skin-to-skin contact on those bait piles. They're transmitting diseases. Um, And that could be another factor, you know. I personally feel like that might be a, you know, one thing about corn, too, is people, people usually that put out corn are putting out what, you know, they like to sell as wildlife corn, <laughs> which basically <laughs> means this corn was in the bottom of the silo and got too hot, and it's not fit for selling to people, so we give it to the animals. <laughs> <laughs> and so those that corn's usually very high in uh, 
aspergillus, which is the fungus that actually leads to aflatoxin. And aflatoxin, although it may not kill turkeys um, in extremely high amounts, it can, I, I equate it to giving a person a common cold. Now, if a hen has been on these bait piles all through January and February and even into March because people are bait or putting them out there for deer and then they continuously putting them out there, you know, now into February for deer hunting and then they start putting them out pre-baiting for, for turkeys. And then when March gets here, if that hen has eaten so much corn and has so much, such a high amount of aflatoxin in her system her fitness may be suppressed enough where she makes a conscious decision not to nest. Really? That should, hit, that should hit home. Now, I don't, there's nothing that I can show you, you know, in terms of research that's going to validate that. But I've talked with several other biologist counterparts of mine who feel like that could be another contributing factor. And I, and I don't doubt it. I mean, it makes logical sense. You know, if, if a bird has to make a decision as to whether she's going to nest because nesting is very taxing on a hen, just like lactation with does and, and white-tailed deer. You know, it takes a lot of energy and they're basically their fitness is suppressed a little bit when they go through nesting. They're also putting themselves on the ground overnight where they're more susceptible to predation. And if she's not feeling great, you know, she may make a conscious decision. I'm just not up to it. I can't, I can't rear brood this year. Um, and she may not die, you know, so we can't say that that turkey didn't lay because of aflatoxin because we just don't know. But common sense, and at least my, my redneck way of thinking would say, <laughs> I mean, of course, if she's got all, if she's, if she's been sitting here eating, corn on the ground in a pile it's been getting rained on every day and it's loaded down with fungus and aflatoxin and who knows what kind of disease well sure i mean she's either going to die or she's going to be in a depressed fitness her, her her fitness will be suppressed enough where she makes that decision maybe not to nest yeah and those are all various factors that we feel like maybe that may be leading to turkey decline there's one other that i want to talk about i know i've gone through several Mm-hmm. But, but it's leading back to the research. Um, and, and when we talk about the Southeastern Wild Turkey Working Group, we, we've actually, and I say we, every state uh, agency's technical committee representative for uh, their turkey, respective state turkey program, um, are all, you know, serving on this group along with all, you know, the NWTF staff in, in the uh, Southeastern region. But our state agency partners have all basically agreed that in a what, what they've called a white paper that they've put together for the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies who task this group, similar to the way that they do with a deer study group, um, to research and, and look at all uh, the populations of turkeys in, in every state and, and what we can do in terms of harvest, bag limit, and season length and framework because those are really the only things that we can control from a statewide and a, and a region-wide standpoint. But the white paper that they've put out basically says that we all are in agreement that moving the season later would give more ample opportunity for those gobblers at the beginning of the season 
where we're at now in March, you know, 16th this year to have more opportunity to successfully breed hens. Um, and that's just a general consensus across the Southeast. Now, what we're doing with our research is we're using adaptive harvest management and predictive modeling. And I know that's kind of a mouthful, but basically what we're doing is we're looking at over these past five years and we're still interpreting a lot of this data at how changes um, in season framework and bag limit might reflect the population, you know, on the population. So that's the reason over the past two seasons and it's, approved for next season as well on these six WMAs and Chocolock is one of them. So it, you know, it kind of hurts me because I lost a week of hunting on Chocolock. But at the same time, we're getting invaluable information because that's going to tell us whether or not shifting that season is actually producing results in terms of an increase in pole per hen ratio leading to more recruitment leading to more birds, leading to more ample opportunity for harvest. And that's what we all want anyway. So that's what a lot of this research is. And what the predictive modeling and the adaptive harvest management basically is, is we're taking that year-to-year data and we're feeding into uh, very complex algorithms that I don't even understand. Um, but we have professors at Auburn and, the, and the, actually it's now – we partnered with uh, NC State in North Carolina and uh, Dr. Fackler there who does a lot of this predictive modeling and, and also with Pennsylvania uh, and uh, Penn State and the Pennsylvania Game Commission to because they're doing some similar work up there to basically put our data through this uh, predictive model to kind of figure out what the ideal outcome would be based on those different season framework and bag limits so you know could it be a later shift meaning we get the same amount of days um an opportunity to hunt which is important to me because i only get so many you know like i said i'm pretty busy this time of year um but you know at the end of the day we want what's best for resource at least you know i know as biologists we all do um but also you know it's gonna it's it's basically telling us uh, what year-to-year impacts we're having. And that's where the adaptive harvest management comes in because we adapt every year according to what the data tells us. And then we know we're getting more precise because as we go through time, those data sets build up. And as I mentioned, the more data we have, the more precise and accurate we can be with our decisions. Mm-hmm. So. If we continue to go through time and we look at this in an adaptive harvest management way and we feed it through these predictive models, we can actually make our models more accurate over time. So that's kind of where this research originated five years ago. And now we're kind of to the culmination of it and interpreting all this data. And hopefully by the end of this year, we're going to have all this data interpreted. There's already been several papers done um from undergrad or from graduate students um from various different things ranging from uh game camera surveys on 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 turkeys to uh to what their home ranges look like um what their core area looks like you know in terms of where they spend most of their time um lots of different studies that have been ancillary 
data for us from graduate students. But what we're really focusing on is that adaptive harvest management and the predictive modeling aspect, which is relatively, you know, kind of a new concept in terms of, of how we manage turkey populations. It's actually originated in the duck world um, because they looked at predictive modeling for migratory uh, birds. And so now the Fish and Wildlife Service uses predictive modeling to set those seasoning frameworks and bag limits. That's why you see different ones every year for your ducks. So now people who are duck hunters out there, they understand why, if you've kind of followed my my logic here, my reasoning, and what I'm what I'm speaking about when I talk about adaptive harvest management and predictive modeling, they're feeding all their data from all of their uh, records every year of the ducks that they have been reported, and they they feed it back through, and they get more accurate, and they change those bag limits and what you can kill what the season looks like when it's open, when it's closed from year to year. And that's kind of where we're starting to go with turkeys. Um, it's a different way of looking at things. You know, we haven't done that, you know, in the past, but personally, in my opinion, I think it really is, you know, the, a good way, you know, a good way to start looking at how we can maybe turn the tide on this, uh, decline that we're perceiving okay that's that's very interesting and that's also i mean yeah you pretty much ran through everything i was going to ask you so you nailed it because yeah, was... there's there's another thing too i did because I, I put down some notes here about the, the turkey decline <laughs> there's one more that i want to mention and that's farming practices so if you look at the cumberland plateau for example and that's just basically north alabama in general um, the most northern part of the states in the Cumberland Plateau. Historically, um, that would have been a lot of crop and ag land. Well, over the years, that's changed either to, um, you know, chicken houses and or a lot of cattle production. So they're taking out cropland or fallow fields that might have been in CRP, and they're putting them into pasture grasses, which yeah, you probably will see a lot of birds out there strutting to, you know, show, display, and have more opportunity for sex. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's not necessarily meaning they're out there feeding on pasture grasses. And it's definitely not good for, for brood-rearing habitat because bulls, you know, they're, they're just too small to maneuver in those, those turf-type grasses like your um, – your fescues and your Bermuda and Bahia that they just, there's no way for them to feed on, on the bugs that they need. And, and, and research again shows us that pulse need about 80% of their diet to be insects. And that's purely from the perspective of getting more protein so they can get up on the limb faster. And it's also a contributing factor for escape cover. So if you have a hard edge on a pasture land, for example, you create what's called the edge effect. And that means that the way predators hunt, they run edges or they run trails. And that's why if you put a game camera on, you know, a four-wheeler trail, you're going to get a lot of pictures of, of coyotes and bobcats because mm -hmm. that's how they hunt. You know, they're going to run these roads where they can be quiet and stealth until they catch scent. 
But if you buffer and mitigate that by putting native grasses and bunch grasses out there, that gives them escape cover. You know, these neat, and when I say that, I'm talking about native grasses or early successional habitat, which is basically, you know, need a waist high vegetation where a turkey hen can pop her head up and look and use her eyes to her advantage because that's her number one asset. But the poults can be feeding in and amongst those bunch grasses down below on insects um, because what's good for pollinator species is great for poult have for broodering habitat. And that is the number one most lacking uh, habitat we have in the southeast, largely due to lack of fire. A lot of that's probably due to lack of farming practices. And, if you know, a lot of older folks are going to remember that people used to burn from hedgerow to hedgerow if not year to year, at least every other year. And that created a lot of that native fallow field um, so they could reinvigorate that topsoil. That's where CRP came from. Mm -hmm. But you also see farming practices such as chicken litter spreading, and that goes back to disease. I want to touch on this real briefly because blackhead or histomoniasis, which is the technical term, um, is the disease that you contract through chicken litter. Now, it's not contracted through all chicken litter. And I, I want to say, and I kind of want to back up here and say histomoniasis or blackhead is, is a protozoa that actually has a two-stage life cycle. So it starts in the cecum or the basically the, the anus of a turkey, and they, they excrete it, and it's a little uh, fecal worm, and then it turns into... Uh, when they ingest it, it goes through that two-stage life cycle before it actually becomes uh, detrimental to the to the turkey and they can contract histaminiasis. The problem is chickens can have blackhead and they have no ill effects from it. So they're not being inoculated for histaminiasis or blackhead when they give them, uh, you know, all their vaccinations through feed. I mean, I have chickens on, on our farm here, and I actually have turkeys as well. Um, but turkeys can be. It's almost always uh, causes mortality in turkeys in blackhead. But the difference is if you spread chicken litter from a laying house, those, those chickens are old enough that you're almost always going to have cases of blackhead in that laying house. Now, if it's from a broiler house, it's a different, you're, you're talking about a different scenario because a broiler house, those chickens, they may only be in there, you know, six, eight, ten weeks max. And that's just not long enough for that two-stage life cycle to take place. So that chicken litter should be fine to spread. Um, but that's a big point of emphasis that I want to make to your listeners because a lot of people out there that are spreading chicken litter they think maybe it doesn't have an ill effect on turkeys. And a lot of people think, well, any chicken litter has ill effect on turkeys. But the research shows us that it's mainly your laying houses where those birds are older and they have the chance to let that two-stage life cycle play, take place um, in that protozoa to get into the soil. And when I say it gets into the soil, the original research suggested that it lasted about three years. Well, there's been some recent research that's starting to suggest that it could possibly be seven years or even more in the soil. Oh, wow. Yeah, so what that means is if you spread chicken litter on a field, you could have blackhead or histomoniasis 
they're living in the soil, which translates to the grasses that they're out there eating and feeding on, or even the insects in that field for maybe seven years or more. You know, the data that they have on this particular research, this most recent research, shows that seven years is what they're kind of estimating, but they think it could, they, they're leaning towards the probability that it could be more. So it's just something that a lot of these farmers need to kind of take note of. Mm-hmm. That's why I bring it up. So kind of staying on the habitat thing, which we're about to be coming up on time here, uh, how much does like the the production of like loblolly pine in the south have to do with it? Because I've heard people kind of crap talking loblolly pine plantations because they don't make the best turkey habitat because you can't, you can't burn it until they're a certain age, and and a lot of people have they're not they're not managing for turkeys, so you end up with like a closed canopy forest that has basically a carpet of pine straw beneath it. So, I mean, is there enough of that kind of um, really? It's kind of agriculture, but with trees. Is there enough of that out there to be impacting populations, or is that kind of just a property to property issue? It's it's usually a property to property issue, but I do think it affects. Um, Populations, I don't have any doubt of that. And I, I, I'll give you an example. We Initially, um, on this research that we've been doing over the past five years, we did a pilot study in Geneva and Houston counties, and specifically in Geneva County, where we saw, according to our, our game camera surveys, one bird per 25 square miles. And you think about that area, and... It's not like it's an urbanized location. It's it's very rural. You know, there, historically there was a lot of agriculture. You're talking about the peanut capital of Dothan down there, not being very far. And why? You know, why we couldn't understand why we're not seeing a lot of birds. Well, a lot of that's probably because there's a lot of these old CRP pine plantations that are not being thinned and they're not being burned and they get overcrowded and then they get shaded out and you have a dense pine straw understory with no vegetation whatsoever, what we call an ecological desert. Um, and yeah, you may kill some birds in there, but they're probably moving from one place to another and you just happened upon them when you could see them. But I want to touch back on what you said about loblolly pine because I'm not going to poo-poo all over loblolly pine. It does serve its purpose. And if a landowner's objective is more about timber merchantability than it is about wildlife habitat, then loblolly pine is going to be your best way to go because it does, you know, it, it can produce in 25 years at saw timber class. Yep. As a force, you know that. Yep. Um, but, but from a turkey perspective, they don't care what kind of tree is above their head. In other words, if it's loblolly, short leaf, long leaf, Virginia pine, any kind of pine, it doesn't really matter. What they care about is at ground level. So if you have loblolly pine plantations, but part of your your goals and objectives for your property are wildlife, and you could kind of make a compromise there and say, well, I'm not going to plant a 1,000 trees per acre. I'm only going to plant 650 per acre of loblolly pine, which is still a pretty dense you know, stand, but you also want to think about how are you thinning? You know, are you thinning down to maybe 60, 70 basal area? Are you thinning down to like 80 or 90, which 
is still not producing a lot of wildlife forage. And when I talk about base Larry, I know you know what I'm talking about, but I'm just basically talking about how many pines or how many trees you're taking out, how much sunlight you're letting hit the ground, which is extremely important because the more sunlight you can get on the ground, the more you can encourage that native grass and that brood-rearing habitat, which we know is that bottleneck and the most limiting factor that we have for turkey habitat specifically in the southeast and a lot of that yes because of fire that's probably the biggest component because of lack of prescribed fire and you you know and i'll go back to loblolly you can burn loblolly at a pretty young age it's just on how you do it you know and that because i've done a lot of prescribed fire and i am a uh, certified burn manager in the state you can actually burn through loblolly that's pretty young as long as you do it in the ideal um, weather parameters meaning that you know it might be a higher humidity uh day with lower winds and colder temperatures and you could do a backfire that burns through real slow with a low flame length that doesn't get to the crown because the only thing that that's going to kill the loblolly with fire is when that fire gets up into the terminal bud or the very top of the of the loblolly and that will kill it mm-hmm. but it will not kill in most cases longleaf that's why people that's why we advocate so much for longleaf what a lot of people don't know is shortleaf has a similar adaptation and that much like you you know when you chop a sweet gum down that sweet gum grows right back yep well shortleaf has that same adaptation so when it gets burned across the root structure stays in place but there's several um there's several it, it can take several instances of fire and continue to grow back and that root structure stays in place until it it gets high enough where when it grows back it'll overtop a fire that comes in so i've seen longleaf pine stands that have been planted on on chakalaka wildlife management area that have native relic shortleaf growing within them and mm-hmm. that tells me that they were already there on site and they're adapted to fire and they so they can they can sustain it just and almost as, as well as as a longleaf could mm-hmm. but i don't want to get too hung up in the different species of tree because if it's not through fire you can do the same thing with thinning and i had a guy tell me well i i burned my pine stand and i didn't see i've, I've heard this a lot actually with landowners you know that i burned my pine stand but i didn't see any any more birds than i did the year prior and i said well you burned it, but all you really burned was pine straw. So in some cases, burning without thinning is really a moot point. And just in the same way that thinning without burning, you know, is a moot point. So it's really about opening up that overstory, that canopy to get sunlight on the ground. And that's the best way you can do it. The more trees you take out, the more wildlife you can sustain on your property. Uh, That's just basically it in a nutshell. Now, you do want to take care of things like wind throw. You don't want to take out too many trees, you know, where you have uh, a lot of risk of loss and uh, due to wind throw and that sort of thing. So you do want to keep enough out there to kind of protect you in terms of your, your losses as, as insurance. But uh, the more you can take out, the better it is. And a forester is going to tell you one thing, and I, as a biologist, might tell you another. And it's just really each individual landowner's goals and objectives it should dictate what they're going to do on their property but from a perspective of looking at 
public land in the way that the state agency and the Forest Service, the federal agencies, Fish and Wildlife and all those, they manage. You know, they're basically managing for multiple resources. So they're looking at both, you know, timber merchantability also. You know, since they're multiple use, they're looking at wildlife. They're also looking at aesthetics. They're looking at pollinator species for monarchs, which is great for brooder and habitat. So, you know, what we do for, for turkeys is also great for bobwhite, you know, which is on a terrible decline. We've probably done more at NWTF for bobwhite quail than any other organization out there. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty certain that we probably have. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's sad. What's happened to the bobwhite quail? Which, interestingly enough, as as they're kind of going away in most areas, where I grew up in Central Alabama, Shelby County, uh, I'd never, I didn't even see a quail until I was like fifteen, rabbit hunting down in uh, Perry County, Alabama. And we jumped some out of a a nasty little fence row. And that was the first quail I'd ever seen. Well, this past summer, I was back up at home, uh, where I'm from, doing a little deer scouting. And I actually heard quail every single time I went out in the summer, and I even jumped some. So that's pretty that's pretty encouraging. And that was on public land. Um, the state's been doing a good job with that piece, and it's nice yeah. to see quail there. I mean, it's definitely an indicator that things must be going well because if I if I remember correctly, they're kind of a keystone species where if quail are doing good, you know that a lot of other animals are doing good as well. That's exactly right. That's a good point, Andrew, and that. You know, quail are not only like a keystone species, similar to what you would see in gopher tortoise who need that open understory um, and frequent fire, um, but they also, you know, are a, they're not a, spe- they're not a generalist species like eastern wild turkey who can basically live in anywhere there's food, water, and cover. They have a very specific niche that they need and a large expansive range that they need that specific habitat type. And that's why you see like South Georgia, where you have a large group of landowners and tall timbers and all those areas of contiguous acreage where they have sustainable quail populations. Um, And I I think back to my granddaddy grew up, you know, here in this same city, you know, I I got some pretty deep roots in this town. In fact, um, dating back to pre-Civil War era, um, for the Bobos here in Oxford, well, he grew up quail hunting for sustenance. That's what they went and shot to feed the family. They didn't even, my granddad didn't even know what the turkey looked like. You know, there was no turkeys when he was coming up, much less deer. Um, so, so basically what they were doing was jump shooting wood ducks in the creek bottoms of Chocolaga Creek and, uh, and killing in killing quail and now it's kind of flipped you know there's no there's not as many quail and we see more turkey and more deer which is great but uh we'd like for them all to thrive and I, I i do i know we're running out of time but i do want to touch on one more thing because recently i was very proud to see our organization put out a position statement on prescribed fire during the growing season or nesting season in other words we advocate for prescribed fire any time of the year, at any means, by any means necessary. And I have numerous calls every year about all these turkey nests being burned up. And, I, and I'm and i telling you, the research, in fact, we've got more research that we're doing. We just started this season that's going to be going through for another 
couple years with Auburn and the Forest Service, actually up here on Chocolaca, to look at nesting success and the relation to spatial scale in terms of how big those burn units are and timing. So do they take place during that nesting season? Well, I can tell you from research done in Louisiana and Arkansas, in Louisiana, I think they had about 300 nests that they monitored. There was only one nest that was burnt over. And I said it was burnt over because the turkey actually came back, sat on that clutch that was black all around her, hatched those eggs, and was successful in rearing that brood. In Arkansas, they had about the same amount of nests and found three of those you know, 300-plus nests that they were monitoring that were burnt. And I don't think that's going to impact your population at all. Wow, that's uh, I, I'm not, a, I wasn't aware of those. That's that's interesting. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to get you to send me those. I want to read that. Yeah, and it's 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 a topic of much controversy. I think a lot of people want to point to that and say that's the silver bullet. That's the reason because we have all these large scale fires and they're all taking place during nesting season. I mean, I'm talking even people within certain agencies that I've talked to have that opinion, and I just. I just don't think that that's it. You know, I, I've seen too much research that shows, you know, where typically they nest or in riparian corridors and areas that just don't see fire. You know, and even if they do nest, the fire kind of moves around in a certain mosaic, you know, and it doesn't just continuously go in one solid, huge 15-foot flame length for miles. You know, it kind of meanders through the woods just like it would have historically. You know, when Native Americans were setting fire to the ground, they didn't have fire lines and major, you know, top top six engines out there that they could put out these fires. <laughs> yeah. they just lit pine knots and let it go from one ridge top to a major river bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I just I just don't think that's it, and and we're pretty much on the same page in terms of our organization and and standing with our particularly our federal agencies, because they're the ones that take a lot of flack in terms of the Forest Service and all our national forests about burning up all these nests. And it's just, you know, I saw last year it went viral on Facebook, this one burnt turkey nest. And I I heard, you know, this is over here on, you know, at one point it was on the Okmulgee. And then I saw the exact same picture that was in Mississippi on the DeSoto. And then I found out that originally it was on, the Southern Research Station in South Carolina, and all it was was people putting "quote unquote" fake news out there on social media <laughs> to, to to just you know de- to to make fire look like this major enemy when in reality it's the one thing that we need more than anything, in my opinion, and that's why we place so much emphasis specifically here in Alabama in helping get fire on the ground. I agree that some of the scale of these thousand acre plus burns should probably be smaller, um, especially when you talk about quail. Uh, so what we do as a state as, as a state chapter is we help fund, you know, to the tune of this year. I think we put in uh, about forty five thousand dollars for two different burn crews that are not. These are private burn crews who are overseen and administered by other NGOs. They're not working for the Forest Service, but they help with their capacity issues so they can get out there and burn on a smaller scale. 
and mm-hmm. do it in different seasons and different times of the year. So we're doing everything we can to help with that scale issue um, and and to a, to an extent a timing issue. Um, you know that that's something that we're looking at, and we're and like I said, that's something we're also researching. That I'm very, I look very, I look forward uh, very much to seeing what the outcomes of that research are going to show us. Mm-hmm. Now, we're I'm going to have to get you back on the summer to just talk about talk about ecology and all all that kind of stuff, like why people burn in the growing season and the place that fire ha- has on the landscape. I really want to do a full episode on that because that's a giant rabbit hole, <laughs> about as bad, yeah. bad as hogs. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to because that, that's one thing that if, I, that if I don't recommend anything else to a landowner, prescribed fire is the most effective and actually the cheapest tool that we have in our toolkit as biologists and land resource managers to use on a landscape and Mm -hmm. it you know it was here historically you know even our we know that longleaf pine and shortleaf pine adapted to it because they saw it so frequently across the southeast when you look at and i don't and i could save this for the next issue but when you look at dendro chronological data which i know is kind of a mouthful it basically (laughs) looks at, at older trees and burn scars when you take a cross section of that tree looking at all those rings they can tell how frequently it was burnt you know over 200 years ago or you know almost 200 years ago and that what that has shown us is that you know back in the late 1800s and early 1900s in in my neck of the woods it might have been every three to five years and down in in the most southern part of alabama or as we like to call it la lower alabama <laughs> It was probably getting burnt every every year to every other year, every one to two years, mm-hmm. yep. and that is that is factual. That's been proven by taking that dendro, dendrochronology um, of these trees and showing where how frequently these fires occurred on the landscape before we started trying to do everything ourselves instead of letting you know. And in 2016, we had that major drought. All those fires that occurred, like 400 and something fires, wildfires that occurred across the state because of that drought, they're all getting suppressed and put out, and, and rightfully so. You don't want to have loss of life or loss of um, any major, you know, metropolitan areas or anything like that. But you know, years ago, when when Europe before European man was here, those droughts would have just made fire across the landscape and it would just it would have just went on for miles swept until something stopped it yeah that's right i once read about a fire that supposedly went from uh eastern alabama all the way up to south carolina like it didn't of course burn the whole state of georgia but just parts of that fire like you were talking about earlier like meandered through you know took certain drainages and and just kind of that fire over like the course of a whole summer like backed up and this wasn't recent this was you know back i want to say in the 17 or 1800s or something like that i'll have to find it and if i do i'll post it but i found that pretty fascinating just how how fire could move across the landscape pretty freely until we kind of put roads and houses and cities everywhere (laughs) and and you really look out west at what happened in in california just this last year with 
460,000 acres being burnt. Yeah. And you tell me that's not a large landscape level effect. I mean, and that that's not that's not a prescribed fire. That is catastrophic fire and people dying. Yeah. Because there's su- they've suppressed fire where it naturally occurred in that, you know, Sierra Nevada area over there in in in, uh, in California's you know, it's <laughs> they're a different breed out there and they're just <laughs> We're down here. We're fortunate because we're a little ahead of the curve, and we're starting to understand. People are starting to manage with fire, and we're kind of behind the eight ball out there. And it's it's costing our government a lot of money, and it's taking a lot of money in in what we call fire borrowing from the South to do work on our national forests. They're taking money out of our budgets in the Southeast to move to suppress wildfire in the west because they don't practice prescribed fire mm-hmm. so there needs to just kind of be a shift in the culture not just down here but even over there in you know especially over there yeah now real quick as the last question like i said we're coming right up on time i want you to the best of your ability to kind of explain what you know not only alabama turkey hunters but turkey hunters in the south can kind of expect going forward, you know, with this decline over the next few years, like some changes that may or may not, you know, happen. Like what are some likely things we might end up seeing? Well, um, you know, the, 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 the Turkey management committee would kill me if I told you <laughs> what we were leaning towards, but I will tell you, there'll probably be some changes, um, looked at by the conservation advisory board, that we give recommendations um, to Executive Director Chuck Sykes uh, to give to the Conservation Advisory Board who makes the final decision, um, and that would be in terms of the the bag limit and also the, the season length and framework. In other words, what those starting and ending dates look like, how long the season is, um, and, and how many birds a year can we harvest because I can tell you right now, Alabama is the last state in the country to have a five-bird limit. South Carolina was was the only other state until just a few years ago. Now we're the only one that has five birds a year. I'm not saying that we're going to change that because I'm not in control of that. I don't make that decision. I'm not a legislator. So <laughs> we, we can only give recommendations, and that's, what, that's as far as we can really go. But I, I only say that because I want people to understand that we still have a very, very, very liberal bag limit and also a pretty liberal season length as well. Most, a lot of states, and you look just north in Tennessee, are not starting until April 1. Yeah. So those those are some of the things that may be looked at. I'm not going to say one way or the other where it's going to go or what it's going to look like because that's all going to hinge on what our data suggests in terms of the predictive model and how we want to go forward with adaptive harvest management and that will that will kind of give our recommendations and we just don't kind of have that right now we're we're almost at that point we're reaching the end of a marathon basically um and we're on this kind of this last mile here so hopefully by the fall we'll have all this data interpreted and be able to give some recommendations um to the board and hopefully that's that's what is going to lead to some changes because that's really the only thing we can control from a statewide standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I can speak for you know myself and most of the people listening that 
we're all pretty eager to see what you guys find out and kind of see what these changes are going to be and what the data shown. Uh, I'm, I'm for one, very interested in what the WMA data is going to be, like where y'all delayed the season uh, 10 days or whatever it was for all these years. Uh, I'll be very interested to see the results of that. So I can't wait. But uh, Brandon, thank you for coming on, man. And I pretty much guarantee this is not the last time I'm going to ask you to come on. Hopefully I can get you to come back because I really got a bunch more stuff I want to talk about. I do do a lot of radio interviews and podcasts. It's not the first one. Uh, I was just telling my boss the other day, I said, you know, I love getting asked to do podcasts because it's like, it's, it's the it's the next big thing you know i i listen to a lot of podcasts myself and i've talked to several other people um that do podcasts and have done some interviews for other podcasts and you know i listen to them in my truck you know all the time when i'm driving and it's a great way to get the message out because there's so many of them out there and it's such easy access now with our technology so it's oh, a great yeah. way to get our message out yeah, and as a as like a content producer in like the hunting space, it's it's really good for us to be able to talk to you guys and get some of this information out because I I kind of know how it might be aggravating for a guy like you or a guy like Chuck Sykes where you have all these things that you're doing and you have these idea of, ideas of what's going on, but communicating that to the public might be kind of difficult just depending on how you do it. And, you know, a setting like this, you have plenty of time to kind of explain what you're doing and and where your viewpoints are coming from so i I mean i i think it's beneficial hopefully hopefully it is i mean i'd say that most podcast listeners are are pretty keen to this stuff i mean they're they they know and they'll listen and and they'll make their own opinions but i'm just glad that we can be a part of you know getting the word out and kind of maybe in some small way helping the issue by kind of raising awareness about it Absolutely, and that's why I'm, you know, so glad that you had me on, Andrew, and I appreciate you having me. I look forward to getting back on with you again. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.